0: Welcome to Church at the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness, This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to be here. Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds and our ears to what you have to tell us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. morning. Oh, we can definitely do that better. Good morning. morning. Awesome. All right, well, um, it's a nice, rainy, sunny you know, day outside. I'm glad that you showed up. Um, we have been going, if you're new, through the book of Hebrews, and so we're kind of just picking up right where we left off. Today, we're talking about the priesthood of Jesus. I mentioned last week that one of the things that, when we moved to Boston a little 13 years ago or so, um, woo-hoo, one, of, <laughs> one of the things that um, we learned is there's a lot of religious systems that are here that are grounded in a priesthood. And that's something I never grew up with before. Like I never looked at somebody and went, that's my priest. And so it was an interesting concept for me to begin to learn what this actually means outside of scripture. And so for those of you like me who don't have that kind of as an understanding, um, a priest was an individual who was intended to represent mankind to God, like a mediator, this person who's in between, right? And so, I, like I said, I didn't necessarily grow up in a tradition that taught that, and so, um, the best thing I can come up with is we understand this as human beings that live in the United States of America because we're constantly voting for people to represent us. Now, whether you like the person that we voted for to represent us or you don't, this isn't the political message. It is, it's your thing, right? But we understand what that means. Every so often, you, as an American citizen, are supposed to go to the polls and cast your ballot for somebody and what you're actually saying is i believe that this is the person that i want to represent me to something it could be something very small like we have individuals who represent those of us who live in east boston to the state and we say this is the person i want to represent or we have huge elections like the presidential election where we're saying we want this individual to represent us to the world so there's all kinds of different levels here but when we're talking about An individual who is going to represent us to God, that changes the stakes a little bit. So the question is this, as we dive in, who represents you to God? Um, It's a hard question. Scripture makes it very clear that because we are sin-cursed individuals that we are separated from God the Father and that our sin keeps us separated from Him. The wages of sin is death. It also makes it very clear that in order for us to be restored to God, something has to intercess for us. And that's an interesting concept. Meaning the Gospel begins with an understanding that no matter what I do, no matter how good I think I am, no matter the the list that i have in my head that makes me a good person so to speak that eventually over my lifetime it's still not going to be enough to reach the standard by which god has set for us to be with him which is perfection so i stand before you a very imperfect person i'm looking at a bunch of imperfect people and we have never met a perfect person in our life well that's that's an issue so what ends up happening is we say, I mean, I, when, I, when you ask this question, oftentimes people say, well, who's representing you before God so that you can be restored? And uh, it's a very American answer or humanistic answer for us to say, well, I represent myself, right? The problem, there's a problem. The problem with that is that as a sin-cursed being who can't be perfect, you're never going to be able to rep yourself, represent yourself to a place where you're going to be able to be with God we have to have somebody intercessing for us. So just understanding that, you understand this is the role of the priest. This is what the priest does. And so in Old Testament days, we had this, if you've you've grown up in Bible world, if you've ever read the Old Testament and you start reading about the priest, the first one was Aaron, we're gonna talk about a little bit today you find that their job was to represent sin-cursed mankind to holy God by offering sacrifices of atonement for the people. And if you read that system, it was messy. It was ugly. I mean, I've never, I'm a visual guy, and I'm also a, a decently emotional guy. I also love animals, and so I have a really hard time thinking about the sacrificial system that went on. But if you try to visualize it, the priests that were offering the sacrifices daily in front of the temple or in front of the synagogue or wherever they were offering these things, it was a messy business. There's blood everywhere. There's, it, it's just, it's, I, I, coming home from work as a priest, I can't imagine. Like the cleanup in itself would have been unreal. And the the depiction of this is that we're supposed to understand that sin is very messy and it's very costly. There's a, a cost that has to be associated with living a life in rebellion to our Creator. And so we have this system where the priests would come in and, for example, if I had done something and I knew I had done something wrong. Obviously, and so then I would come to the priest and I would say, I'm, off, I'm asking you to offer this sacrifice for me for this specific thing. But the priesthood in the Old Testament all revolved around one specific day. It was called the Day of Atonement. Where the high priest would go into what's called the Holy of Holies. There was this big curtain that was there and it separated the the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. The Ark of the Covenant sat in there and once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and attempt to stand before what would be the Shekinah glory of God and represent the people and offer a sacrifice by pouring blood over the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. And this all sounds so weird. And it's so messy and so nasty. But this is it. When we dive into what the priesthood looks like, the first thing that the book of Hebrews is going to talk about is that the most beautiful thing about the gospel is that Jesus becomes our high priest. But he doesn't just become our high priest. He he becomes the perfect high priest because he's not just the high priest. He's also the last sacrifice. And when we combine these things together, and that's kind of my hope that you're gonna get a picture of this. When we combine these things together, you're gonna realize that ultimately the idea that Jesus is our high priest is one of the most beautiful things that we can possibly imagine. So if you haven't turned there yet, turn into Hebrews chapter five. I'm gonna be starting at verse one. This is what it says. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And this is pretty much the introduction. I explain this. So we know that every priest, there's a couple of things here. They're chosen among men. It's appointed by men. So the first thing is a high priest has to be a man, meaning a human being. Why a human being? Because in order for us to be represented to a holy God, we have to have somebody who understands us and relates to us and is us. So we have some interesting um, verbiage here. So we've got this individual who's a human being. It says that their job is to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So if you came from a religious system where you said, okay, we have priests, then that priest claiming the state of priesthood is saying, I am here to represent you the people before a holy God. And it's my job to make sure that that all happens, because that's the definition of a priest. And so we have this individuals who are saying, I'm relating to God. I'm standing in the gap between you and God to deal with sin through these sacrifices. And that's the ultimate definition of a priest. Verse 2, it says, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. There's a couple of things here as it kind of continues to enhance the understanding of the job of priesthood. We have this individual who it says, because they're human, they can relate to us as people. And there's an interesting phrase here he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. The, who are the ignorant and wayward? I have been pondering this for the entire week, just going, okay, ignorant and wayward, ignorant and wayward. I've looked at the original languages, I've looked at how this works and who it's talking to, and this is my conclusion. I, when I read this the first time, I thought, okay, the ignorant and the wayward, it means that the priest has the ability, because he's a human being and can relate to people, to say when an individual comes into maybe that congregation or look at the world around them and they see that these individuals are kind of ignorant, they're living in sin-cursed world, sin-cursed bodies and doing all these things and I can, I can have compassion on this, I can understand this because I struggle with the same types of things. And so I kind of classified it as that, but what I'm realizing is that this ignorant and wayward is talking about every single person. And so, like this week, I kept telling myself, I'm ignorant and I'm wayward, right? And you go, well, how is that possible? Well, because there's always something that even as a Christ follower, we're constantly working on, always. Sin is deceptive. I've said this, I think I said this last week. Sin is deceptive, and if sin is deceptive, then how do you ever know if you're being deceived? It's hard. It's hard to know sometimes. We live in a world that is gray and oftentimes we're taking the gospel to these places and we're saying, okay, I'm attempting to apply the gospel to this situation and it's not as black and white as I want it to be. For example, how is it that I love this person but also talk truth to them at the same time? There's no issue here for God, but as sin-cursed beings, we have an issue balancing these things. It's hard. Every circumstance can be different and our job as Christ followers is to take the gospel to individuals, to apply the gospel in areas of our lives. And what I've learned as I'm getting older and older is I don't have the answers a lot of the time. I walk into circumstances or situations where I just go, I don't know. Sometimes some of you will come to me and you have this deep theological question. And you're like, I really want an answer to this. And I ran to somebody recently at the coffee house at State Street. Like, we were sitting here, and we were talking about this, and here you walked in, and here's the question. And I looked at him and went, I don't know. I can look at that a little harder and try to get you an answer. But off the top of my head, I don't know. That's makes things difficult. It's we don't always know how to apply things and so then i go and i'm going to study it and look at it and go okay what do i think on this topic and what is the holy spirit saying and what are the scriptures saying about this and it can be difficult sometimes i'm just ignorant and there's a lot of things in life where i find myself being ignorant i have um, a guy who as i'm getting older we're trying to get finances in order right and I talk to a financial advisor and I have to ask questions that I feel are silly because I just tell them when I start those, I'm like, listen, I'm really ignorant when it comes to this, so like, what is this? And it's probably like a kindergarten question for them, right? But we find ourselves in life in things where we're just ignorant, we just don't know. And then we also find places when we're completely wayward. Meaning we've made actual decisions to say, I'm not gonna walk that direction, I'm gonna walk this direction. I'm not gonna walk toward Jesus. I'm not gonna apply the gospel to this situation. Why? Because I want what I want when I want it, how I want it. And that's the curse of being a human being as well. So it says the priest's job was to help understand that he's dealing with ignorant, wayward people. And that's important. And the reason that it's important is because we're not just, we're talking about a human being who's a priest, who's offering sacrifices. And can you imagine the difficulty? I mean, I don't know, there's humans. When I think about the old old system, the the Old Testament sacrificial system, I think if I had come home, let's say it's, I don't know, it's five o'clock and I'm supposed to be home. And then here walks up Joe with his little pigeon that he wants me to kill on the altar. I'd be like, dude, Like really, like it's time for me to go home and you want me to get all messed up again, right? Like as a human being, we've processed things that way. And so I think there would be a tendency at some point for a human being who's having to offer sacrifices for other people and eventually it's gonna talk about themselves, that you're gonna get tired of doing it. And you might even develop some bitterness toward the individuals who are constantly bringing sacrifices. I'm just guessing here because I know people. Where if you didn't have this understanding of people you might actually put yourself in a position where this person needs a sacrifice and I just go, "Oh, Can you imagine doing a sacrifice with the bitterness toward the individual you're having to do the sacrifice for? All right, let me apply this to something what we understand. Think about a relationship that you're in. It can be a friendship, it could be significant other, it could be marriage, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. It doesn't matter, pick one. And think about every time that you have to make a sacrifice or every time somebody has to make a sacrifice for you, there's bitterness involved in it. Eventually what happens? The relationship will crumble and fail, right? So if I'm going to my wife, Christy, and I'm like, hey, here's some things I need you to do. And every time I need her to do something for me that is a sacrifice for her, she's just like, I can't believe I have to do this again. This is terrible. And doing it grumbling and doing whatever. And I'm doing the same thing. There's no compassion there. There's no understanding there. We need a priest who's going to understand that we are who we are and we are in sin-cursed bodies and we are living under a curse and we do live in a sin-cursed world. And we have to not only identify ourselves as being ignorant and wayward at times, but understanding that every single person that we ever come in contact with is in the exact same position. And that is what helps us understand each other. Jesus talked about this a lot, right? When we're dealing with people's sin, He's reminding us that we're to take the log out of our eye before we remove the speck from somebody else's eye. There's all kinds of analogies where Jesus is going, listen, you're constantly judging other people and not yourself enough, and it creates this turmoil because you don't understand. You're not providing the compassion that's needed. The, The job of the priest was to make sure that they understood and so if we keep reading it says because of this he was obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he did for those of the people so this is where it would get really frustrating. I've I've put way too much thought into this you're gonna see okay so it's five o'clock Joe comes up he wants me to offer the sacrifice for the pigeon I take the pigeon I kill it I offer him the, the the sacrificial thing that he needs in order to fulfill the law and now I'm bitter so now what do I have to do I gotta offer a sacrifice myself now so now I'm two hours late, right? And then I'm getting bitter over the fact that I'm two hours late, so now I'm going, oh, tomorrow morning, I'm going to, to come in and offer another sacrifice for myself. And this cycle would get old. It would get so exhausting. I, I kept thinking, like, I would not want to be a priest. <laughs> I mean, the weight, the mess, the constant frustration, it would be so difficult. Walking home and my wife killing. how was your day and I'm like (laughs) all I did was kill things all day long I mean the priest had other jobs they would offer sacrifices and their job was to represent the sins of the people for atonement to God through those sacrificial systems But they were supposed to mediate for the people to God but they also were supposed to draw the people to God this is a big responsibility it's a lot of weight A lot of weight. So anybody interested in signing up as the job of a priest? (laughs) Now or I'm gonna make this as relevant as I possibly can for you because when I ask that question, like who's your priest, you realize that this is necessary. Like there's there's really no argument around that. We know that as sin-cursed beings, the holy god, we're separated and something has to happen, we have to have this this priest this intermediary so the question is is it you if it's you then this is your day and it's impossible to maintain you'd never do anything but offer sacrifice and it wouldn't be enough verse four and no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by god just as aaron was this pretty seems at this point pretty self-explanatory right because I'm like, who wants the job? And nobody's raising their hands. So there has to be a, a calling, a, a moment where God impresses upon the priest's heart to say, this is something you're supposed to do. I'm calling you to this. The closest thing I can come up to this would be, I mean, anybody at this point could step up and say they're a pastor. When we planted church at the well years ago, um, we ended up joining two networks, two church planning networks, and I put myself through their assessment process. And assessments aren't fun. Assessment, my first assessment, it was in Seattle in 2011, and basically I had written about 100 pages for them, and I gave them everything about me, and I, we, Christy and I sat in this room of individuals that we had never met. And we had sent them all of this information. And we basically, it was a miserable process. We basically just allowed them to say whatever they wanted to and however they wanted to say it. And they had tons of questions and digging in and looking at every area of our life. And they're trying to find, is there like these secret places that you're not revealing? And ultimately what they're doing is we're saying, we're asking if you as a group of individuals believe that we are called to go do this. Because part of calling isn't just I'm called, it's also, is it being confirmed by other people? So this still happens. I think the call to even a pastor should be something that's taken very seriously and something that we, we need to know that you're called to do it. So I get that. But when I look at this priesthood, I mean, in the United States, being a pastor isn't too bad, it has its issues. It's, it's emotionally difficult, it's tiring, so on and so forth, but it's not this. So because nobody was signing up for this, right? there's a call that goes into the heart of an individual that says, you are going to be a priest. You are going to be this person. Why is that so important? why is it important to even have a call if you're going to go into ministry or why is it important that we said oh we're going to put ourselves in a place of assessment so that we can figure out do we really believe that this is a call because if you're not called and you don't have the ability to move your your mind and your heart back to that calling you're gonna quit because it's too hard right so we get it like this if if you're killing things all day long and you're dealing with the problems. Most people didn't go to the priest to say, I'm having a great day. (laughs) right? My dad was a police officer. And what I learned very quickly as a kid was that nobody goes to the police to tell them how good of a day they're having. Everything they deal with is just awful, right? Everything. And you go, well, does that impact? Of course it does. So, and I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, well, that's not even a calling, but imagine being a priest and you're dealing with this all day, every day. You're never gonna do it for the money because there wasn't any. So what are you doing it for? I'm doing it because I know the Lord has called me to do this. The calling's important because it keeps you going in the midst of the difficulty, okay? Let's keep going. Verse 5, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we're going to make this switch. My first job here in understanding this passage is to help us see what the, the position of a priest is and to understand the necessity of it and what they do. And then the author of Hebrews is gonna make this kind of change for us where he says, okay, now I'm going to introduce this idea that I already started for us last week, that Jesus actually fulfills the role of the high priest and he's been called to be the high priest and he's ultimately the perfect high priest. So we're gonna work backwards now. I go back to verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. How do we see Jesus in this? First of all, we know that Jesus in the Incarnation came to be to, so that He could represent mankind. Theologically, we know that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. Crazy. We, we see moments in Jesus's ministry when his Godhood is revealed. I love those moments. It's those moments where he's walking around as a human being but something crazy happens, right? Can you think of any? There's some miracles that happen, that's kinda cool. But there's moments where Jesus, he actually uses certain verbiage where he's declaring to be God and then things around him change. Uh, Jesus's arrest. They come to him and they say, are you Jesus? And he says, I am. And the words that he uses are, I am, I am God. And it says in the scriptures that the Roman soldiers, when he said that were thrown backwards off their feet. It was a moment where the veil of Jesus being man and God was kind of lifted and the Godhood came out. There's moments where Jesus is being worshiped, why? Because the veil is being removed and people are seeing him as God. It's crazy, these moments, there's tons of them. And you're like, I don't know these, read the scripture. You'll see them. Jesus is 100% man, 100% God. The question is, why does he have to be 100% man? What was the point of the incarnation? Well, According to the author of Hebrews, the only person that can represent mankind to God is what? A man. So it becomes necessary for Jesus to take on flesh. It becomes necessary for Jesus to come and be a man, to leave what we're trying to get to in perfection and come here and put on flesh. To actually represent mankind. Every week when I describe the gospel to you, I say it very intentionally the same way over and over and over. And the first thing I say is that Jesus came and lived the life that we were supposed to live. That is so important. There has to be a 100% representation, or it doesn't work. He has to fully represent the life that you're living, just like the priest did in the Old Testament where they were offering sacrifices for people and they were offering sacrifices for themselves. Jesus has to represent that. So he comes as man, why? So that he can represent us. Why is it important that he's 100% God? Well, God is infinitely more valuable than we are. And because he's 100% God and not just one man, can represent all of mankind and not just one person and that's so cool when you think about it i mean you just process that this week the beauty of jesus coming and living the life that we were supposed to live is unfathomable because it's not just me that can say that it's not oh he just came and lived the life that kevin scott was supposed to live if you've placed your faith and trust in jesus and you belong to him then you also have the ability to say He came and lived the life that I was supposed to live. It's not a one for one thing. Why? As man, he can represent mankind. As God, he can represent all who believe. Unbelievable thing to think about. It makes this universal idea of the gospel become very personal. for every high priest, think about this, I'll read it again when you think about Jesus, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. What sacrifice did Jesus offer? Himself. Jesus comes and he has all of these cool nicknames, right? One of my favorite and should be everybody's favorite if you're grounded in the gospel is the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. The Lamb of God comes to live the life that we were supposed to live and then die the death that we deserve as a sacrifice. It's the coolest thing when you think about it. He says, all right, I've, I, I, I'm, I'm God, 100% God, I'm 100% man, I've come to earth, I'm going to live the life that you were supposed to live. What does that mean? I'm gonna be tempted as you were tempted. We talked about this last week. I'm gonna understand, I'm gonna have compassion, but I'm going to be sinless. When we look at the old sacrificial system, on the Day of Atonement, that animal that was sacrificed was supposed to be like the perfect animal, right? They were bred for it. They wanted kind of no blemish on it. It It was supposed to represent perfection. But the problem is, scriptures also tell us that animals can never pay for the atonement of a human being. So what was happening during the Old Testament sacrificial system is, out of obedience, the priests were offering sacrifices for others and themselves, but it wasn't enough to pay the cost. It was enough to keep God's wrath at bay Nobody can die for your sins except somebody who fully represents you. So an animal can't do it. So at this point, we've come to the conclusion an animal can't do it, and we've also come to the conclusion that you can't do it because you're not perfect. So what does that leave? It leaves an individual showing up who actually can represent you fully by living the life you were supposed to live, and then willingly saying, I'm going to die and offer everything, my perfection in exchange for your sin-cursed life. Jesus, as the Lamb of God, comes and places himself in a position to be the last sacrifice needed because it's the perfect sacrifice. It's why it's so sad when you think about individuals who are still attempting to make these horrific sacrifices for their own salvation because the sacrifice that's needed has already been made. Amen. I mean, this will eventually apply to very you know aspects of our everyday life. But when you just think about salvation as a whole, we're stuck. We keep trying to offer sacrifices. We keep trying to find it, and it's already been done. It's Jesus. So Jesus comes, He lives the life that we were supposed to live, and then He dies the death that we deserve. He willingly placed Himself on the cross. The only thing that held Him there was His willingness to be the sacrifice for us. It's interesting, because when you think about the temptations of Jesus, there were even moments where people I'm trying not to get emotional, I keep talking, where people are literally standing around looking at Jesus being sacrificed and what are they doing? They're mocking Him. He's nailed Himself to a cross to pay for the sins of that, to potentially pay for the sins of that individual. And they're mocking Him. And one of the things they're mocking Him in is what? If you're really the Son of God, come down. So here's the question. Could He have... The answer is yes. It wasn't the nails that held him there. What held him there is he knew that he was appointed to be the last sacrifice, the Lamb of God. What held him there is that as he was being mocked, he was looking at the individuals and saying, I love you. Verse two. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward because he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. How does this relate to Jesus? Jesus, we, we talked a lot about this last week. If you weren't here, you can read the passages from last week. Jesus understands because he's been tempted like we were tempted. He walked it. We all have those people who are like, it's not gonna be hard to think of somebody. Think, you can think of somebody who's critical of you, but don't walk in your shoes, right? And if you, we, we do the same thing. Like think about somebody this week, probably in the last 10 minutes, that you were critical of, but you don't walk in their shoes. You don't know their story, you don't know their background, you don't know what they're walking through every day, day to day, but we're constantly making judgments of people, right? that's how the priesthood looked as from a humanistic standpoint they 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 identified because they were just as dirty and rotten as the individuals they were offering the sacrifice for it's like a demon can go i understand being a demon because i am one so i can watch you do all this evil and go yeah i get it right we we can relate to each other in the aspect that we say man i I know I'm messed up and sometimes I remember that so then I have compassion and then there's other times I forget that and I don't have compassion and it's, it's a complicated world and this human relationship is bizarre. When you look at Jesus, he doesn't relate to us because he, under, because he understands what it means to give in to sin. He relates to us because he understands what it looks like to be tempted to sin. but what makes him the perfect priest is that you want that priest to be able to go, I can relate to you, I can have compassion on you. Jesus says, I understand why you're ignorant and wayward. I understand the draw to that. I've seen it. I know how powerful the curse is because I did it. It's intense to think about. He gets it. But he also went, I walked it and I remained the perfect lamb of God because I never gave in to it. So I can relate, I can have compassion, I can understand. I know why you give in. But we don't look at Jesus as this high priest where in the Old Testament, you might actually like walk up to somebody and go, "Look, I'm a, I need you to offer the sacrifice for me, but I also need to know, have you offered your sacrifice today? Because this That's kind of important. Like where's your heart in this? But with Jesus, there's no question. Jesus, you understand, yet you didn't blow it, and so you became the perfect sacrifice, so you can look at us with compassion and understanding, but you separate yourself in the aspect that we can constantly look to you as an example. That's pretty awesome to think about. Verse four, and no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. What is Jesus constantly saying when he's walking the earth? I haven't come to do my will, I've come to do the will of the Father. There's moments where there's ag- ag- agonizing going on in Jesus. I mean, you think about the moment right before he's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and you, you, that whole scene is crazy, right? However you wanna picture it, it's crazy. He's got his closest friends there, they keep falling asleep, he's agonizing. It says he's agonizing so much that his sweat is like drops of blood. Why is he agonizing? Because he knows what's coming and he's a human being and it's gonna hurt but it's not just gonna hurt because of the physical component. It's also gonna hurt because he knows what's about to happen. There's this moment on the cross where Jesus yells out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, Jesus literally, it says in the scriptures, became sin. God had to turn his back on his son because God can't, God the Father can't be in the presence of sin. In that moment, this is weird theology, in that moment, Jesus, takes on all of that sin of everyone who would believe and he literally represents all of it combined together. So God says, I have to pour all of my wrath onto that. So Jesus doesn't just feel the physical pain. He actually feels for a moment a separation from the Trinity. I don't even know what that looks like. But he's never had the Father turn his back on him. Why have you forsaken me? The pain and agony that goes in every component of Jesus and what he's doing. We know that Jesus did that, but he was also appointed it. We know that, I mean, I mentioned, it's not the nails that held him there. He, He could have come down, but... Father appointed Jesus to do this work and Jesus said, I'm going to take that appointment and get it done. Verse 5, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another passage, another place, you are a priest over forever after the order of Melchizedek. So let's dive into this real quick. This is the appointment of Jesus to the mission. And the author of Hebrews is quoting two Old Testament passages here from the book of Psalms. Um, the first one is from Psalm 2.7. You are my son, today I have begotten you. This is a messianic, prophecy claiming that the individual that we've been waiting for the earth has been waiting for to come and save mankind from the very beginning Genesis 3:15 is going to be the son of God. What does that mean? It means he's going to be royalty. It means he's going to be God himself. He's going to be the manifestation of God in every way possible because he will be God. So there's this prophecy written long and long before Jesus ever comes. It says, this is who this person's going to be. And then it describes him in this next passage where it's quoting from Psalm 110.4. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is a teaser. Melchizedek is a crazy figure in Scripture. Like You can walk to any pastor right now, anybody who's a, a Bible scholar, and ask them about Melchizedek. And they're going to be like, that dude was cool, but I don't know what's going on there. It's unbelievable. I'm not going to, this is a teaser because in the next cha- couple chapters, we're going to talk about Melchizedek a lot. So I don't want to be repetitive, but we're going to dive into who is this Melchizedek. But ultimately he becomes the, the birth of the priesthood, if you will. He's kind of the first. Aaron becomes the first official priest, but it's in the order of Melchizedek. And so we'll, we'll talk about all that history in the past because the point of this specific passage is to say Jesus didn't appoint himself high priest, he was appointed to be high priest. And why does that matter? Because he meets every single qualification that any high priest that's a human would meet. Why does that matter? Because Jesus fulfills the high priest role as our mediator to God, better than any individual could ever perform it. And that in itself is something to be praised. He comes to represent us. He takes on flesh. He lives the life that we were supposed to live. He died the death that we deserve. Three days later, rises conquering sin, Satan, and death forever. And it says in the Scriptures that he now sits at the right hand of the Father. He sits in the right hand of the Father as prophet, priest, and king. When we're looking at this idea of priest, this is the one that I really want you to grasp from a practical concept. In Christ, if you're here and you're saying, I believe that, I've put all of my faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, meaning I'm a Christ follower. All of my faith is in the gospel and what Jesus did and who he is and nothing more. Why can I do that? Because sacrifices don't matter for my salvation. Only one matters. That's Jesus. So I am going to put all my faith and trust in His sacrifice, not the ones I think I need to offer. If you've done that, this is what you have in Christ, sitting at the right hand of the Father. You have a mediator who's there twenty-four-seven. the high, The priest, the high priest, is literally sitting on the throne going, I'm here to represent my people in the courtroom of God. He's no longer here on the earth doing it, he's there. The the magnitude of that should be overwhelming because you realize that every single time the enemy throws an accusation at you, Jesus is present going, nope, already been paid for. Yeah, but did you? Nope. Already paid for it. Blood's been, blood's been spilled for that. That person's mine. That's my son, my daughter. Prince or a princess, princess are mine. You can make all the accusations you want. It's already been paid for. It's done. The, the overwhelming joy that that should produce in each one of us as Christ followers to know that He doesn't just sit there as King, but He sits there as your High Priest with every one of these definitions met. To know that your salvation is no longer requiring any type of sacrifice because it's already been done. That when Jesus on the cross yells, it is finished, or to tell us die, to be accurate, it's paid in full, that He meant it. It's done. There's no more sacrifices needed for salvation. In fact, one of the most awesome images in Scripture is that at Jesus' death, that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, it says, was torn in two. Why? Like of all the things that God could do. I mean, some weird stuff was happening when Jesus died, right? Says people were coming out of the grave, there was weird stuff going on. But of all the things, why take the time to rip the temple curtain in two? Because it was the immediate understanding in every way possible to say there is no longer any separation between God and human beings in Jesus. It's done. There's no more need for the Day of Atonement because it's done. The Lamb of God has been sacrificed. There's no more need for the sacrificial system. There's no more need to... Keep appointing individuals as high priests because you already have one and he's going to be your high priest for eternity. He will always represent us. Always. So, this is why, I, you know, when I, I said, like, who's your high priest? It's a really important question. Who represents you before God? You have to answer that. And if you don't, then the answer is, well, then you're representing yourself. So let's make this as practical as we can. If you're here today and you're trying to figure this thing out and you're like, okay, I understand, I get it, I get the priest thing, I understand the sacrifices, so on and so forth. But I'm just trying to weigh on the scale where I can be good enough to make it. and I'm just gonna tell you right now, you can't. Blood has to be spilled. A sacrifice has to be made. And you can't make it. Why? Because we're too dirty. We're far from perfect. The wages of sin is death because we sin against an eternal God. That death is eternal death. The punishment is severe. So attempting to do it on our own is foolishness. It's wrapped in pride and arrogance, and it's beyond ignorant and wayward. It's literally looking at your creator and going, "Ah, thanks, but no thanks. And knowing that the end is done. All right, let's ask the next one. Well then, maybe you're not banking on yourself. Maybe you're banking on a religious system. Maybe you're saying, well, I'm banking on the fact that I go to the right church and I have the right priest and they're doing the things that they need to do for me. Well, now we got a real big problem again. Because in my mind, you're going, well, I'm not really willing to do it myself and I know I can't, so I'm just gonna throw my sin onto somebody else who's just as sinful as me. Can you represent me? And that's gonna be a big problem. Because they can't do it either. I mean, it's lined out here in the Scriptures they can't. So what are you going to do? An answer's been given. And I love you enough to tell you this, that if you're relying on anything but Jesus, your end is doom. Because nothing else can save you. Only Jesus. Only. His sacrifice, only Jesus' high priest can represent you before a holy God. And if that's you and you're here today and you're going, man, what do I do then? It's removing the faith that you've placed in all those things and placing all of that faith into what Jesus has done and continues to do. It's saying, he's my high priest, he's the Lamb of God, He paid the penalty for my sin. And it's this transference of faith from ourselves and others around us to just Him. It's There's the gift, grab it. In full faith. With nothing else. It's not, oh, it's Jesus and. It's not, oh, it's Jesus and I've got to be good, or oh, it's Jesus and I have to go to the right church, or it's Jesus, no. Salvation is grounded in Jesus and Jesus alone. So once again, if that's you and you're like, well, I want that, okay. Then there's a few things you can do. I, I would encourage you to talk to somebody. You can come talk to me if you like, answer questions. Better, turn to the person next to you and go, do you know Jesus? And if they say yes, then you can talk to them. I'm a pastor of a church, I'm not a priest. Thank God. I do not represent you to God himself. My job as a pastor is to help the saints, (laughs) to empower the saints. My job isn't to be perfect, because I'm not. If that was my job, I'm out. (laughs) Too late. So there's nothing magical about talking to me, but I'd love to talk to you. But you doesn't have to be me. It's just that transference. So I would encourage you, if that's you, do that. Like, be bold enough and courageous enough to say, I've been doing this on my own and I've had enough of my wayward and ignorant ways. Talk to somebody. All right, church, for those of you who are here and you've professed Jesus as Lord, as Savior, this, there's a couple of things here that have overwhelmed me this week. The first is this is to be celebrated with everything in us. And we are the worst celebrators on the planet. It's so phenomenal to me that the scriptures have to constantly remind us to be joyful. You would think that's what we want, but it's not. We fight it. We're like, eh, I don't want to be joyful. I got all kinds of stuff I got to complain about. This isn't one of them. Right? Like, Christ followers, do you realize, like think about it, just the implication. You realize that no matter what, Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father as your high priest. He represents you. That that should overwhelm your heart. Why? Because it's not dependent upon me, and it's not dependent upon you, and it's not dependent upon some system. It's dependent upon God himself. The other thing is you have access to him whenever you want. That's unbelievable. Last week he said you in Christ can approach the throne of God with confidence. That scares me, but it's true. Jesus does understand. And he does care. And he also can provide you the wisdom and the grace that's needed for us to make adjustments in who we are and what we do so that we can claim less ignorance and less waywardness on a daily basis. That is to be celebrated. It is to be celebrated that your salvation is not dependent upon sacrifices that you make. (laughs) That in itself, like as human beings, We don't understand that. We always, in fact, we'll actually go as far as say there's no such thing as a free lunch. Why do we say that? Because it's our experience. We understand that there's always strings attached. There's always something. There are strings attached to this. What are they? Jesus will take you just like you are, but he won't leave you that way. Your life will change. Those are the strings attached. But it's not dependent upon you. You can wake up in the confidence every single morning knowing that your salvation is secure in Christ, in Christ alone. That's something that should be celebrated. So when's the last time you celebrated that? Like when's the last time you actually woke up in the morning, took a breath and just went, I can't believe I'm alive. I can't believe that when I do die, that I'm secure. I can't believe that no matter what happens today, whether I handle it in the gospel or not, that my salvation is secure in Christ because it's not dependent upon me. I can't believe that when I do blow it, I can go to Christ in repentance and know that he's already forgiven me. Those things should be celebrated. But this passage should also cause a little bit of conviction Because we're not just people running around celebrating all the time. We're also called to do some things. We're called to be on mission. We're called to apply the gospel to ourselves and for others. And so when we think about the understanding of the gift that we've been given, there should be some conviction when we're just going, okay, I understand this. Paul talked about this a lot in the book of Romans. Just because you're saved and it's there doesn't mean you get to live however you want. And so every time we come in contact with the scriptures, we realize that part of our salvation is the gift of the Holy Spirit who is supposed to be there to convict us of things that aren't holy in our lives. And Jesus understands those as well. And I don't know what that is for everyone in here, it's gonna be something different. But it could be I'm not part of the body and I'm commanded to be. It could be I'm not repentive, and I'm commanded to be. It could be I'm really judgmental toward everyone that I meet and I'm commanded to not be. It could be that I'm angry all the time and I'm told that's not holy. It could be anything. It could be I don't love people. And you go, well, that doesn't sound very celebratory. It is because this is the thing. You're not stuck there. Why? Because you have a high priest who understands and has provided you the grace and the power to get it done. And I'm gonna just go this far. It's not dependent upon you. We don't we don't ground ourselves to do those things on our own strength and power. We ground ourselves in the one who did. And he says, I'll help you do it too. So whatever that looks like for you, we we have this mix of jesus being high priest but there's a joy and a conviction that comes with it so as we approach the table today the communion element set here the band's going to come up we're going to sing a couple of songs this time's for you this is time for you to reflect it says that every time the church gets together we're to participate in this we're to be reminded of the sacrifice of jesus and and this table representing the blood and the body of jesus and the sacrifice that was made for us It's to remind us of those two things. The joy that comes with it and the conviction that we're constantly needing to make changes, to be more like Him. Sometimes we come to the table in tears. Sometimes we come to the table dancing. Most of the time it's both. But I'm just gonna encourage you, if you are a Christ follower, you don't have to be a member of Church of the Well. You need to be a member of the body of Christ. You can participate. And I encourage you, take some time, reflect. What does it really mean for you personally that Jesus is your high priest? That the sacrifice is paid? Are you still trying to make sacrifices for salvation? Why? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunities that we have to hear. Lord, we're messed up, dirty people. We we profess ourselves to be ignorant and wayward in so many things. But Lord, we also are overwhelmingly grateful that Jesus is our High Priest. Lord, thank you that that role is no longer held by sin-cursed man. Thank you that the final sacrifice has been paid. Thank you that that curtain in the temple has been ripped and that we have access to you through our high priest who sits on the throne. Lord, I want to pray for any single person in here right now who's never given their life to Jesus, who has never transferred that faith. Lord, the, the exhaustion that they must be feeling as they continue to try to make sacrifices to be whatever it is that they believe that they need to be to please you. Lord, I ask that you would relieve them of that right now, that you would remove the heart of stone, you would give them a heart of flesh, that you would give them the ability to see their own sin-cursed bodies, their own sin-cursed minds, and the beauty of Jesus. Lord, help them to see that Jesus is the only way. And I pray, Lord, that you would save them. And Lord, for your church, would you remind us that you sit on the throne that You are High Priest. That we don't have to impress You with sacrifices or continue to hold on to our salvation through acts, Lord, but that it's secure in You. That Jesus is the proof. But Lord, help us out of gratitude and love and amazement and joy in You, knowing that You save us. Help us to live a life worthy of being called a Christ follower not for our salvation, but for our good and our joy. So Lord, wherever you need to convict our hearts in that, I pray you would. We lift these elements up to you. We ask, Lord, that you would use them as a reminder of Jesus. And we thank you for that gift. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.